Well, good morning. My name is Sam Caston-Smith. I am the headmaster of Bethany Christian School across the street. And it's a, a real joy to be able to, to come and to share a message and to preach on my favorite season of the year, which is Christmas. And a lot of times I think we look at Christmas and we forget. We get caught up in what our culture has made it. And we really forget just how awesome and sacred and precious this holiday is. And what we're celebrating. You know, when when I first heard about the, the tragedy that happened at Sandy Hook, it was kind of like, it was mind-numbing to think of the kinds of evil that men could do. To look at pictures of six and seven-year-olds. Precious and cute faces. To hear Matt read a list of names that as a headmaster, probably three out of four of every one of those names draws up an immediate face of a kid who's got that same name across the street. We live in a world that is broken in a million different ways. And it creates this longing in us that This is not right. There has to be something better. How in the world could we live in a place with this much brokenness and this much pain and this much hurt? And Christmas is God's answer to that problem when He is going to send His Son to come into the world, into Bethlehem, into a stable, into a manger. And in that manger is the solution to all of our remedies. He's not a God who's distant from our pain. He's not a God who can't relate to that hollow, gut-wrenching feel of how awful humanity can be at times. He is a Father who knows what it's like to lose a son. He's a father who knows what it's like to have a maniac coming to kill his son. Which we'll hear about next week. Our God knows this. And let me tell you the gift that He gives when Jesus comes in flesh, laid in a manger, is God's pronouncement that all of that, all of that sin and death and hell is done with. And here is the remedy, my son. And so when I hear about the people from the school taking Christmas decorations down, it's doubly devastating because the solution to this is to double down on Christmas. To double down on the fact that God has loved us so much that he gives his son to remedy the heartbreak. So today we're going to talk about a costly Christmas. As Matt said, in the passage that we're going to read about today, there's two names that are given for Jesus. And I would argue that they are the two most costly words in all of Scripture. Emmanuel and Jesus. So we'll start with our passage and let's just read this through. Matthew 1.18 Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet who is Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So in this passage, if... Tom preached a, an awesome sermon on Father's Day about the cost of Joseph. So I would encourage you after the sermon to include that in your worship today, to go back and to listen to the Father's Day sermon where we talked about Joseph. But today I want to focus on these two profound names, Emmanuel and Jesus, God with us and Yahweh saves. Incredibly meaningful. The Christmas holiday is amazing because of what is held in those two names. But before we get too farther, I want to build why Christmas is hard for some people. I came across this poll recently. It was on CNBC News, and they found that 45% of American adults would prefer to skip the Christmas season altogether because it's a source of too much stress that places too much of strain on finances, on work, on our relationships. And I would be willing to bet that there's probably somebody in here who can relate to that, who can look at the Christmas season and say, man, you know, this is really, really stressful. I can tell you in my own family, and I come from a family that is interesting. Um. I can remember being raised up and I had a wonderful Christmas with the exception of one Christmas where I got thrown out of my home, an entirely different story. I will be a cliffhanger for another sermon, but <clears throat> I can remember my parents went way out of their way to make Christmas extremely, extremely special. Every Christmas I was so excited, but the older you got, the more you felt like Christmas lost its magic. It lost its specialness the older you got. And so you start thinking to yourself, okay, well, you know, Christmas is starting to be done for me. I'll just make it special for my children. Or I'll just make it special for the little guys around me. And we forget what the whole purpose of Christmas is. It should never diminish. It's a magical, amazing holiday. But what do people do during Christmas? You look at what just happened at this school and it's made all the more tragic. Why? Because it's Christmas. And everyone's thoughts immediately go to, my goodness, what's it going to be like for that family as they go to open presents around the tree? You know, some of those will never be unwrapped. At least not by the person who they were given to. That makes it all the more sad. Loneliness is amplified at Christmas. Why? It's because during this one day, this one season during the year, we kind of get a taste for what we're meant for, what we're made for. 
for relationship and everything to be good and joyous and peaceful and loving. And when anything is even slightly out of accord with that, it makes Christmas so devastating to some of us. My mom would devote tons and tons and tons of resources to making sure that our Christmases were incredible. If you come to a Cast and Smet Christmas, there's going to be the tree, there's going to be the decorations, there's on every conceivable open space, she has some kind of Christmas knick-knack about the nativity or Santa or elves or something. The whole house is decked out in Christmas. She goes to incredible lengths to make sure that the meal is coming well, that the presents are going to be exciting for all the grandkids, and it never fails that when Christmas Day comes, my interesting family will have some event where one brother gets mad at another brother or storms off or something doesn't go exactly according to plan and my mom is totally devastated. And then we hear the speech, this is the last time I ever decorate for Christmas. The same is true in a million different ways for every family in here. My brother Mike is a manager of a Supercenter Walmart in Atlanta. December is not his favorite month. (laughs) There's so many people I can't... I've heard from parents now that we're re-enrolling and the truth of the matter is we're in hard financial times and it's like, man alive, the stress of having that on top of Christmas and the finances that are involved here. (sighs) How am I going to make this work? My kids expect this, that, and the other for every Christmas and this year because things are a little tighter. We're going to have to be disappointing. And Christmas is something that we know is so special that when the slightest thing is out of rhythm, it's devastating. It's a taste. It's a picture. It's a glimpse of heavenly things. So when anything pulls our feet back down to this earth, it makes Christmas harder. Why? You know, the funny thing about Christmas, and it's, it's, it's the way humanity works. It's, it's really pretty hilarious. Every single thing that you and I struggle with when we come to the Christmas season, where we think or even entertain the thought, man, I wish we could just skip it all together. What's the cause of that? It's, it's the slavery that we have to work. It's the slavery that we have to finances. It's the slavery that we have to broken relationships. It's the slavery that we have to expectations and envy and everything else that comes with a fallen humanity piles on top of our back, drives us into the ground come Christmas when everything is supposed to be heavenly and it's just not because of all this baggage that is put on top of man's shoulders. And the great irony is, Christmas is the announcement from God of the remedy to take care of all of that stuff once and for all. To fix and restore relationships. To save you from the cycle of vanity where you work and work and slave and slave and nothing can save you from the grave. And here comes this baby in a manger that lays himself out and gives himself entirely to save us from that. And the great irony is that half of us look at Christmas and go, man, life is too hard. I want it all gone. And we neglect the fact 
This is when we celebrate the cure. In that manger is the cure for all of your ails. So let's just focus for a brief moment on when everything started unraveling because there's a grand story that has an awesome punchline that comes at the nativity that I want to share with you. Starting all the way back in Genesis 3, just hang with me through this. When Adam and Eve chose to say to God, you know what, we'd rather live without you. I want to be the master of my own fate, so I'm going to take and eat from the tree, try to get the knowledge, and God, I don't need you, no thanks, I'll be like you. And God comes in and says, really? Okay. You think you can make it on your own? Have a try. And he comes and he says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Remember that. Until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Some of the most hard words in Scripture. Think about what that means. You're going to spend your life desperately trying to find anything that will satisfy you. You're going to work and you're going to work and you're going to work. You're going to try to find something to satisfy your need for relationship, your need for finance, your need for sustenance, your need for fill in the blank. And no matter how hard you work, it's never going to be enough. And even if you're the very best at what you do, you're still going to return to the dust. It is the ultimate hamster wheel. And if the story ended there, it would be nothing but despair. So you unravel the rest of Scripture and you're going to start finding that God has lots of famines that He brings upon man. The next slide. You see, I mean, they're all over the place. You get to Abraham and he has a famine. And what does God do? He says He wants Abraham to be faithful. Abraham's not, but God saves him from the famine. Isaac saves Isaac from the famine, Jacob from the famine, Jacob's sons are saved from the famine. When they go down to Egypt in search of bread, right? This bread that can keep them alive, at least for a little while. Do you know what they're enslaved doing in Egypt? It's not building pyramids. They build store cities for Pharaoh, storage cities, entire cities devoted to the storage of grain that they might be satisfied for a minute. They go out into the wilderness. There's no food. There's no water. What does God do? He rains down bread supernaturally. You look at Ruth, a famine that's devastating, but God saves her and the family. David has a famine. Elijah has a famine. Elisha has a famine. Nehemiah has a famine. And every time God comes to their rescue... And Solomon is so upset with the way that this works, how we slave and slave and slave and slave and can't get ahead. He writes this in Ecclesiastes. He says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. And Deuteronomy, God gives us the reason. This is why you have famines. This is why you have longings. And he says, Moses says, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus will repeat that later after he has to fast for 40 days. You feel this tension, this desperation? How in the world can we be fed? How in the world can I find what my heart is longing for? Because I slave and I slave and I slave and I go after everything in this earth and nothing is filling me up. 
And it's famine after famine after famine after famine and God rescues His people, but good grief, I'm tired of the famine. God always provides for His people to get over famine, but there's one famine in Scripture that's incurable. There's one famine, and it comes by the prophet Amos. He says this, writing in 750 B.C., he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. God can rescue from the famines of bread, from the famines of water, from the famines of broken relationship, from the famines of pain and hurt and divorce and everything that we struggle with. But there is one famine that we can never recover from. And it's a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. If your soul is dried up and you do not absorb the Word of God, if your devotional life is empty, Every tragedy that comes into your life will be devastating and it will have no purpose. It will not work its way out to a redemptive end. There is one key to eternal glory that takes all of your sufferings and makes them meaningful. And that's Christ, the Word of God. So here's this famine that comes and the people turn away from God. And he's writing in 750 BC. I want to, I want you to look at Israel's history. He writes, then the Assyrians conquer Israel. And Israel just starts to unravel the people of God, all the promises of God. This is supposed to be God's kingdom, right? They have a famine of the words of God and they unravel. Then the Babylonians conquer the southern kingdom. Then the Persians come and conquer the land. Then Israel's last prophet Malachi, about 400 years, a little bit more, but before Jesus is born, and there's just silence. Then the Greeks conquer. Then the Romans come and conquer. And if you're living in first century Israel when Jesus comes, hopeless. God is silent. He's not in this. He has left us. We are in famine. We have been passed from one foreign dictator to the next. And all the promises that we've ever had, that famine was debilitating. And yet God provides a faithful remnant who clings to His Word in the midst of the famine of everyone else ignoring it. And so when Jesus comes, I want you to hear that not only for Israel, this long-awaited, please God, bring us a Savior, they feel it And here's the good news too. When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sing that for today. Because guess what? We feel it too. We have those moments where God gives us permission to say, where are you? Please come. Be in the middle of this. Redeem this. So there's this huge famine. A famine of the Word of God. And what happens? Here comes the end to the famine. When John, when he opens his gospel and he's so excited and he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen His glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What was the great famine? It's a famine from hearing the words of the Lord and now here is the Word who comes to His people. And He doesn't just come in the people and the Word take on flesh, but He comes to His people, next slide, in Bethlehem. Now hear this. Bethlehem in Hebrew means the house of bread. 
Here's this famine. And when God ordains that His Son is going to come into the world, feel all that longing, feel all that hunger, and God goes, here is my Son, and He's born in the house of bread. And not just that. He's going to be placed. His first night on earth, He's going to sleep in a manger in a stable. What's a manger? It's a feeding trough. God brings His Son into the world and serves Him up in a feeding trough. Don't miss that. He is our feast. He is the end to the famine. All the hungers, all the pains that you feel, man, feast. He comes to us in that manger. Don't look at the manger as just a cute bunch of chubby flesh. Man, He is your feast. He is your everything. So He comes not just in the house of Bethlehem, but He comes as Emmanuel. So, next slide. Matthew writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. This is from the angel. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And what I want us to think about, what is the cost? Man, we have costly Christmas, but what was the cost of God to become Emmanuel, which means God with us? We tend to think that this is like the birth of Jesus, and from here on, Jesus is alive. And we forget that this is the Son of God who has existed alongside God the Father for all eternity, and He has existed with only a divine nature. But when Jesus said, I'm on the case, I'm on the mission, I am going down there to become a man to redeem my people whom I love, He had to take His eternal nature, His eternal divine nature, and from that moment, He burned the boats of His divine nature Nature, soul, divine nature. And he became a man. And he's going to remain a man for all of eternity. At that moment, he said, if I go and I fail, I will be judged as a man and I will go to hell, but I'm going. If I go, I am going to be a man for the rest of my life. And he puts off his eternal divine nature and becomes a man. He takes his omnipresence, which we can't even grasp, of God existing everywhere. And he becomes a microscopic baby inside of a womb for you. From his omnipotence, this all-powerful God who can speak a universe is into motion... He becomes the same baby laying in a manger that is too weak to lift his head, who can't speak, control his bowels, can't roll over. God. Omniscience of knowing everything. And the Bible tells us, like at Perfect Wisdom 2, that he grows in wisdom and stature. He learns. God has to take that on. Perfect peace traded for the smell of a stable. For horrible sounds. For men who are going to come hunting him down in the middle of the night. The master of all, Philippians says, he empties himself out and becomes a servant to all. Satisfaction, where he's had no wants for all eternity, and all of a sudden he feels hunger. He feels pain. He feels temptation. He feels all these things. Never had he before. 
perfect justice, a world that is totally at peace in the heavenlies where nothing goes awry and he comes into this world and he is surrounded by brokenness that I cannot imagine what it would be like to see with perfectly righteous eyes. Adoration. He lived in heaven with the praises of angels for all eternity and now he's rejected by men. And the best they can muster up is the praises of shepherds, the lowliest of all people in Israel. And the Father within sight, and now He's by faith. When we think about what the cost was, what would you expect? You would expect a birth to royal parents. You would expect a palace fit for God. You would expect, oh, here comes God in the flesh. He's given up all that. We're going to have a big coronation, a big party. We're going to bring the biggest, best celebrities, our kings, our prophets, our priests. Everybody's going to come around and celebrate this. We're going to have a crib of gold. We're going to have a worship party like you wouldn't have seen. And he comes into the world and every conceivable thing that you would expect the God of the universe coming as a newborn king to have? Nothing. Bethlehem? (laughs) A manger? You're going to put the Son of God in a feed box and a smelly stable? What do you mean no room at the inn? Are you kidding me? Do you know who this is? But he comes and he lays all this aside. You know, when we think about the fall of man... When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and their innocent, awesome, made in the image of God nature, but human, fell to sinful nature, Jesus experiences some sort of a fall here for you. From the infinite and divine to the finite and human, and he marries the two in one person. That was costly. It was incredibly hard. So then comes to the next name. Jesus means Yahweh saves. The angel says to Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And that name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. So what's in a name? Why are these two names so important? And I want to just read this to you because it's kind of the thrust of Of where I'm going. And the name Emmanuel, we see that God became a man like us so that he could dwell with us. But in the name Jesus, we find a savior who came to make us like God so that we could dwell with him. Ponder that a minute. If Jesus just came into the world to be with us, Emmanuel, that wouldn't be enough. It would mean that the God of the universe is with us in all of our brokenness and all of our fallen nature. And it would be more or less like we have today, which is much better than being without him. But it's not the complete story. God becomes a man like us to be with us so that the second part of his name, Jesus, can be fulfilled when God is going to go to the cross and he's going to take all the sinful, drenched humanity, all the ugliness, all of our shortcomings, all of the nastiness that you see in this world, he is going to nail it on the cross and he is going to take his perfections and he's going to clothe you and his perfections. Why? So that it's not just God with us, but it's us with God. At the cross... 
Jesus is going to come and He's going to make you worthy to dwell with God Almighty as His bride forever. You're going to be like God. Do you believe that? In that manger is the key to the one who is going to take you and all your emptiness and hurts. And He's going to make you eternally satisfied and glorious forever. That's what the Bible says. We look at Philippians and it says our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Or we can find it in 1 John 3, 2 when He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what will be has not yet appeared because we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Or we hear it from the Apostle Peter when he says that we will become partakers of the divine nature. What? Or that we will become partakers of the glory that's going to be revealed. That baby who is in a manger is coming so that you can share in the glory that he had just left. That baby comes to be like us so that you could have and partake of the divine nature that he just left behind. The descent, the plummet into this world to become Emmanuel and Jesus is phenomenal. Those are the two most costly words in Scripture. And he's not done. He's not done by a long shot. In the Gospel story, we learn that Jesus took on a human nature in order to die for us so that we might become partakers of the divine nature and live for Him. It's a huge, stunning, awesome exchange. It's the greatest Christmas gift. We don't have anything to complain about as far as a costly Christmas goes when you think about what He went through. And then, my favorite... When God comes, He doesn't just come and say, here is Emmanuel, this baby. Look at Him. Adore Him. He comes and He paints the scene, and I hope you'll never see a nativity scene the same way after today. He comes and He paints the nativity in such a way that's utterly stunning. And all of the humiliation that Jesus Jesus bears God is going to paint this remarkable picture of His ultimate glory. So I want to walk you through that. Here's This is what I think of when I think the beauty of Christmas. They start in Bethlehem. And what is Bethlehem known for? Well, its word means the house of bread. But if you go back all the way to David, we know that Bethlehem was the place where they raised up flocks. David was a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. So if you lived in first century Israel and you traveled from Jerusalem on the way to Bethlehem, on the way you're going to see the shepherd's fields. And you're going to see massive amount of fields and you're going, you would have seen huge numbers of flocks and you would have seen towers where shepherds would have stayed. Why? Because Bethlehem is a five hour trek from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a cosmopolitan city. So the place where they needed to raise up their flocks, where they would have daily sacrifices, They would get those animals from Bethlehem. Do you think it's an accident that the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world is going to be born in a stable of Bethlehem? Do you think it's an accident 
that the very first people that God is going to call to come and worship Him are the very shepherds who would have delivered those lambs to the slaughter. This is no accident. It's a small, ignoble town. But God is preaching. Because the very lambs that start in Bethlehem will die in Jerusalem. Sound familiar? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he gives us another one we have. We start with the righteous Joseph. And who is Joseph? He's one of the very few men that in the New Testament, it just flat out calls him righteous. He's a just man. And what does he do? He finds out that his wife is pregnant. Life can't happen in a virgin womb. So he is totally beside himself until an angel comes and says, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Her child is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph, though he has grounds to put her to death, chooses to lay aside everything, endures tremendous cost and shame of being with a woman who is going to be scandalous. And he trades his reputation and he's with her. Gives of himself. At the end of Jesus' life, when we get to Jerusalem, you're going to find another Joseph. And his name's going to be Joseph of Arimathea, one of a very few men in the New Testament that is called a righteous man again. And this Joseph of Arimathea is part of the Sanhedrin, which is the body that voted to put Jesus to death. But guess what? This Joseph, like the first Joseph, will not vote to put a righteous man to death and to fulfill the scriptures because Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah would come and he would have a grave with the wealthy and the wicked. Here's Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, very wealthy, hugely respected. When Jesus goes to the cross, he takes all of that and dumps it aside. I am going to be the one who claims that body. I am going to be the one who fulfills the prophecy that says that he is going to go into the grave of a wealthy and wicked man. Mine. He got it. And he goes and he takes down Jesus' body and it says that they wrap his body and they put it inside of a tomb. And Scripture gives us really, really kind of cool language. It says it's the tomb in which no man had ever lain. Joseph is going to put Jesus' body in a virgin tomb. And moving on, we see that what we typically see is the stable. If you see nativity scenes, almost always they're like four posts holding up a a wicker basket on top of it or something, right? But if you go and you study this, it's not that at all. The, The stables that you would find in Bethlehem, like this is underneath the church of the nativity where they believe and are pretty certain Jesus would have been born, you go in there and it's this network of caves that are hewn into the side of rock. Or you look out in the Bethlehem fields and you see scenes like this where the flocks are on top of rocks, but inside are these stables that are hewn out from the rock. And then we get to the end of the story. And what would a first century tomb look like? Like a first century stable. Or here's the tomb of kings. 
hewn into rock and they would put bodies in there until their bodies decomposed. They would go back in, they would take their bones, they would put them in an ossuary box, ossuary box, and they would put them up on a hill or keep them with the family. Are you seeing some similarities here? Next. At the beginning of this, we find out that Jesus is going to be wrapped up in swaddling clothes, linen strips. It literally, that's what he would have looked like. A baby with all of his appendages put to the side and he is going to be wrapped up. You, you know where I'm going with this? Because when Joseph and Nicodemus come, they're going to take Jesus' body and they're going to wrap it in linen strips. The first century manger, not the cross wooden thing that you see under every wicker basket that's filled up with hay. The first century manger, you see these everywhere. If you just look online, Google first century manger, you'll see this, tons of them. It's a limestone feeding trough that comes out and they would carve out the top and they would put food on top of it. It's about yay high. And they would carve it out. And this is what Joseph and Mary, when the bloodied baby Jesus is born and his body is wrapped, they lay him down into the stone manger. And what does a first century tomb look like? That's where they would have laid a body. A big rock bed. They even give them nice little pillows or one for a child. This one I took in the garden tomb. I took that picture. But it's a stone bed hewn out where you would lay a body. So when, let me ask you this, I don't know, I can't say this for certain, but when the angels come to the shepherds in the fields and they say, hey, this is going to be the sign for you, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger, that's the sign. Never mind the fact that there's a choir of angels up here singing glory to God in the highest. The sign is going to be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, I don't know this for sure, but something in me has to wonder that when the shepherds got there, And they know, here's the Messiah in a stable, the Lamb of God. And they look in there and they see this baby wrapped like a mummy, laying on a stone bed in a cave, that there may have been something that said, my goodness, my goodness. And then you have the Virgin Mary, who is sitting and is beside herself, is asked to do one of the most costly things imaginable. You're going to house the Son of God in your belly. And she says, I can't have a baby. How could this happen since I'm a virgin? What she's doing is she's looking at this angel saying, apparently you don't understand biology. Because I'm a virgin and life can't possibly emerge from a virgin's womb. It doesn't happen. And you go to Jerusalem and you find another Mary who's outside of an empty tomb and she is weeping and weeping and weeping. And an angel appears to her and says, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. But this Mary, like the first Mary, must be thinking, you don't understand biology. Dead people don't come back to life. Life doesn't come out of tombs. And this angel... Like the first angel comforted the first Mary, this angel is going to comfort the second Mary. Oh, and by the way, this woman is far from virgin. She is a demoniac. 
She's probably a prostitute. She is the lowliest of the low. But you know what? That little baby who came in a manger, bloodied body, wrapped in linen strips, came into the world so that that Mary could find utter satisfaction and peace for all of her desperation and fulfillment for all of her longings. When you look at the manger, that, (laughs) that is worth worshiping God. And that is the gift that comes to all of us. And you wonder, why start with such a humiliating picture and take this? If you're going through something in your life today that says, God, why in the world I follow you and yet I feel like I am being drugged through these unbelievably humiliating circumstances. When I look at what we just saw and I see God painting the nativity in such a beautiful way, my first instinct is to think, my God, this is your son. Why in the world would you put him through such humiliation until I see that in the middle of all the circumstances of that humiliation, God is painting the framework for his glory? The same is true for you. If you're walking through humiliation, if you're walking through longing, if you're walking through desperation, your remedy is lying in that manger. That is why Christmas is worth getting excited about. I want to close with a poem that I wrote. I know this is kind of bold. And if it's terrible, just pretend. It's called An Angel's Perspective. It'll be about four minutes long. It's a bit long. But I want to read it. Because I Christmas and the Christmas story is so triumphant. So I wrote this from an angel's perspective. What would it have been like to be an angel alongside the throne of God who sees all this story unfold? What would it have been like? What would that angel have said? And here's my attempt at it. Seraphs surround the glorious throne, roaring their never-ending song. Holy is our mighty God who was, is, and is to come. The unimaginable splendor radiant from His throne, His blinding robe of righteousness, yet His face was never shown. From the dawn of all creation, I had shielded my face with wings, unworthy to share in His glory this one to whom heaven sings. Only one creature was destined for glory. They all betrayed our wondrous King. They ruined the image He gave them, and now they worshipped created things. Then the unthinkable happened. My king set aside his crown. He took on flesh and helplessness. The mighty God came down. But it wasn't with sword or judgment. It wasn't with harsh decrees. But a neck too weak to lift or turn and a mouth that could not speak. No room? A stable? A feed box? Why don't they understand the God from whom I hid my face has now become a man? Once awestruck by His glory, now overwhelmed by His grace, yet none revered His coming, only shepherds filled this place. A bloodied babe in swaddling clothes was a sign for them to tell. The baby in the manger was born Emmanuel. 
I was charged to care for Jesus as he grew in knowledge and skill. The little boy who surprised the scribes knew that he'd be killed. The ugliness of this broken world fallen man can't fully know, yet the holy God walked these streets and proclaimed man's only hope. I was there with him in the Jordan when the father praised his son. I ministered to him in the wilderness when Satan's testing had been done. I saw the religious men mock him as they sought God's favor through law. Yet the lowly and broken he cherished, my master, a servant to all. Then one night all hell broke loose with torches they came in the night. One friend offered a traitor's kiss and one friend started to fight. I could have put a stop to it all for I can kill thousands of men. But Jesus had embraced his fate. He would suffer for his people's sin. Long before his mission launched, I was commanded to stand aside No ministry to my God, my king, as his flesh was ripped open wide. I saw the thorns, the scarlet robe, the rod across his face. I could not even conceive what could be worth this cost of grace. Then I witnessed a horrible sight. The king of righteousness became sin. The beautiful one became disgusting and the father punished him. A torment stored up for rebellious men was released upon my Lord. And because he was forsaken... The fallen man's restored. He was all alone going up the hill where they pierced his hands and feet. They lifted high the wooden cross and he filled the mercy seat. Atonement, salvation, and righteousness cost. The mighty God had died. Blood and water cleansed the race as soldiers pierced his side. The bloodied God was wrapped in linens just like he emerged from the womb. The great tragedy, the injustice, my God was laid in a tomb. I raced home to find my comfort and I rushed to the Father's throne, but He joyfully commanded me, go and roll away that stone. In a moment I raced back down and I rolled that stone away. Victory, victory, my Lord has risen, my God defeats the grave. He destroys death, conquers sin, and releases those in prison. Dear woman, do not weep. Your bridegroom, He is risen. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He secured their second birth. Once from the womb of a virgin, then again from the womb of the earth. Now men surround the glorious throne, joining in the never-ending song, Holy is our mighty God, who was, is, and is to come. The unimaginable splendor, radiant from His throne, and His perfect robe of righteousness, by grace, is now their own. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank You for this Christmas. I thank You for those two names and thinking of all that that cost You. Jesus, Yahweh saves, and Emmanuel, God, with us. Lord, help us not to go through this Christmas and think about all the things that are just the overflow of the joy that is central and what is lying in that and who is lying in that manger. Lord, to think of all the cost that you come into this world as a baby to be killed. You come into this world to cure and to fulfill our deepest longings. You come into this world so that you can say to the parents and the families and the friends of those kids at at Sandy Hook Elementary that you've walked in their shoes, that you've secured their path. And Lord, we thank you that we all have the promise that we will be like you 
that our tears will be wiped away, that our hungers will be quenched and our thirst will be quenched. And Lord, we will have perfect relationship and no more striving in vain because everything we invest in you will last forever. Amen.